Hello and welcome back to Radio Rothbard. I'm Ryan McMakin. I'm executive editor at the Mises Institute. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Tho Bishop, my associate editor. And we're going to talk a little bit today about myths of history that conservatives believe, because this fits into a larger issue about history textbooks and the textbook issue. And Tho's got some specific stuff he wants to talk about. I was thinking about this more just in terms of general historical narratives and how recently in Colorado, for example, there was a fight over, and this was like five years ago. I don't know how recently it is. Uh, depends on uh, what you mean by recent. But yeah, say five, six years ago, there was a fight over textbooks in Jefferson County school districts in Colorado. Um, and this didn't affect me directly or personally, but I kept track of it. And the the locals, the local conservatives wanted to institute this idea of the curriculum, the history curriculum should all be patriotic in nature. And well, what does that mean? Because they didn't like leftists pointing out bad things about American history. Uh, they didn't. They didn't like anyone pointing out that the U.S. government had had done bad things or made mistakes. So conservatives wanted the patriotic version of things. And I looked into that. What was this curriculum? And it turns out that the conservative definition of patriotism, according to this group at least, was basically to sing the praises of every U.S. president, to say that every war the U.S. ever fought was a good idea, and basically that the federal government has always been on the right side of history at all times, everywhere. And so it was always to emphasize all the good that the federal government has always done in the world, which to, to support that narrative and also simultaneously claim that you're some sort of individualist who's against federal power is really silly because basically you're pushing a version of history that says the federal government is uh, wonderful and usually right, if not always right, and you, we need it in the world to do all these wonderful things. And what I found is going through a variety of uh, historical narratives that conservatives use, they employ all sorts of dangerously pro-government narratives uh, that are frequently used. Um, and we've talked about them a lot over the years at Mises.org. I mean, just the, the narrative over, uh, say, the Civil War and the, the, uh, the centralization of power that came after that. And of course... We'll talk a bit. I mean, you could always got to bring up things like FDR and, and all of that. And not not to mention the fact you still got conservatives defending the Vietnam War uh, and all of the uh, the anti-freedom stuff that came with the police state uh, in the wake of that war. Um, these are all conservative causes still, shockingly. So Tho thought it'd be a good idea to talk about that a little bit. And uh, so we'll go over uh, a few points today. And I think we'll just return to this every now and then in the future, looking at some other topics where the narrative really needs to be changed uh, quite a bit. But though you have identified a new topic in this whole battle over historical narratives that uh, seems to be just the latest cause for conservatives. And what is that? Well, it's, it's interesting because as most of our audience should know by now, I am a proud Florida man. And so one of the battlegrounds in American politics where the, the textbook battle, the curriculum battle has really been brought to the forefront um, has been Governor DeSantis's um, approach really with a focus on uh, critical race theory and the sort of racial narratives 
um, that have been worked into various curriculums. And the, the main focus has been um, you know, K through 12 uh, curriculums. And there's been some, some interesting techniques. One, one of the things which I think is a, a, on, the, on the whole a net positive has been the inclusion of um, the victims of communism being, t being kind of a mandatory requirement just as like teaching about the Holocaust kind of is and the way they treat that as, as a specific sort of, of emphasis, you know, one day within the school calendar. Um, but this, this emphasis on the critical race theory stuff, and I'm, I'm obviously not defending critical race theory within public school education, government school education, clarifying the terms there. Um, but it's, it's interesting because I am in the process now of helping some of our community groups look through the new textbooks uh, that are going through for approval um, the way that it works here in Florida is that the county uh, kind of adopts a, a curriculum for you know, each grade for all the major classes. And so that way, if you jump around schools, everyone's kind of on the same book. Um, and so I think it's very interesting flipping through this while some of the historical examples of, you know, racism, right? You know, uh, 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 Rosa Parks, you know, is, 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 you know, told to go to the back of the bus because of race. Um, some of the textbooks have changed the language there to not make a reference to race, which I don't know if that's the actually required by the intent of the law or whether they're kind of using deliberately sort of silly examples as their own sort of way of kind of being subversive to the, you know, government's push there. But it is interesting to see all of the parts of these mainstream historical narratives that are completely unchallenged, that are in all of the options. So again, you know, there's, there's about three textbook options, um, you know, for high school American history or for, you know, middle school history or whatever. And there's so many of these baked in um, biases, the way that they tell specific incidents. And none of these are going to be, I think, particularly surprising to our audience. These are precisely the sort of you know, politically incorrect guide to American history that people like Bob Murphy and Tom Woods and many of our scholars, Tom DeLorenzo, um, have written about in other books and other series. Um, but it, 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 is, it was just kind of a reminder of, you know, for all of this concern about political indoctrination, and I, I think fairly so, I, I think this is a problem with the, with, within the school system, conservatives are still blinded to stuff that is so kind of baked into the cake that you know they, they don't even realize it because it's some it's stuff that they've already sort of internalized so we're going to talk about some of those examples and, and I'm, i've actually got some of these textbooks pulled up i'm going to make direct references to um because again it really gets my my blood boiling right now <laughs> well i'll go ahead and start us off then um because yeah, obviously we had talked about this before we uh, before we we started this and came up with four things uh, that we're going to talk about this time, and uh, we've got we've got others we plan to bring up in the future. Uh, but one that I've often thought about because I taught college level for nine years, and one thing that always annoyed me was the fact that they never made even the slightest effort to talk about the issue of the central bank and how government money is a huge everyday factor in your life. And that government money is a way of uh, controlling you. It's a way of uh, taxing you. 
It's a way of greatly empowering the state. It's a way of giving the state much greater power uh, in wartime, uh, especially, but also in peace, uh, to enrich itself at your expense. And also, there's just simply the issue of not understanding that this money used to be and could function perfectly well uh, in the marketplace, and that there was a revolutionary new thing that took place that allowed the federal government essentially to centrally plan the economy. Every time you see Powell get up there and talk about what the correct interest rate is or what they should be doing with the portfolio, this is an effort at centrally planning the economy. So you got one section of a book that talks about the problems of Soviet-style central planning, which, to be sure, was much more extensive. But then you get to come back to this section and say, and say, oh, well, the government can. Yeah, sure, maybe they can't centrally plan the exact number of widgets to make in Factory B, but they can centrally plan exactly the, uh, the interest rate. Uh, that that should be uh, paid out to banks on reserves, or we can centrally plan and determine exactly uh, what uh, what should the value of mortgage-backed securities be based on our open market operations. And of course, they don't always hit that mark, but they're always attempting to centrally plan those values. And what I found was that even though I was teaching out of what was supposed to be a comprehensive politics textbook, they devoted about one page uh, to the central bank, to central banks in general. And there was a whole chapter on fiscal policy. But then it acted like there was just nothing political at all about the central banks. That, oh, yeah, the Congress taxes and spends or other national legislatures tax and spend. Uh, and that's all fiscal policy. And that's those are political institutions. But central banks are totally non-political. They're, they're like scientists who determine exactly what should be done. And they can't be influenced by the political process. I mean, who's writing these books? Uh, obvious gibberish. But what you get a lot of the time then is uh, this clueless, eye-rolling narrative that a lot of conservatives then use which is that the economy is all about who's president. I remember when Obama was running for president. Uh, and so this was going to be, of course, the first Democrat president then in eight years. Uh, I had a couple conservatives come to me and they're like, could you write up something about how bad the economy is uh, when Democrats are president? And we were thinking you could uh, you could really point out how Jimmy Carter ruined the economy. And I'm like, uh, you're not going to like how this turns out. <laughs> because talking about how Jimmy Carter ruined the economy is going to require mostly me to talk about how Nixon imposed price controls, took the, uh, the U.S. finally off the what remnants of the gold standard remain, drove up deficit spending massively, uh, put the price system completely out of whack, caused massive inflation, and then also freed up, because by closing the gold window, freed up the central bank to just print money willy-nilly without any connection to gold as it had had prior to 1971. Um, so you want me to do that then? Uh, and of course they didn't, because all they could see is the economy is bad uh, because Jimmy Carter was a Democrat. 
And I, uh, I just the other day at Easter, I was talking to a relative and talking about inflation rates really taking off and all these problems in the economy that have started occurring over the last two years. And he's like, well, we all know what happened two years ago. I'm like, what? The Fed massively inflated the money supply. Uh, they continued Trump's policies of trillion dollar deficits. What happened two years ago? Because there was essentially no change in fiscal or monetary policy uh, between um, Trump and Biden. Uh, the policies were, were exactly the same. And then just as Trump would have done, they were ratcheted back down a little bit after the worst of the crisis, but of course continued on an upward trend. Trump would have done exactly the same thing, just as John McCain would have done exactly the same sorts of bailouts. And what's interesting is that central bank policy, it's always the same. It, it has nothing to do with who's president. <laughs> and it's always the same sort of bailout, massive inflation. Whenever there's a crisis, just inflate more and more. And presidents, regardless of which party they're in, do the same thing. And it all goes, it's all in a much deeper level than what these people seem to appreciate and understand. So all they can wrap their minds around is that Democrats are bad and Republicans are good. And I think that's part of the reason they just ignore the existence of the central bank. They can't think beyond like this two-party concept. And so they just come back again and again, making fools of themselves in terms of claiming that Obama ruined the economy and Trump made it good and then Biden ruined it again and George W. Bush somehow was good for the economy. I don't know. Anybody even argues that. But that uh, that's just how it functions. And all it does is ensure that the central bank gets off uh, gets off the hook over and over again and ensures that the economy will just continue to function below the radar with these, these rich, powerful people pulling the strings behind the scenes through the central bank. And conservatives never seem to get any the wiser on it. They just keep sticking to the same tired narratives about which party's in power. And so as long as they keep that up going, just expect more of the same problems over and over again in terms of inflation and uh, economic business cycles. Uh, so that's something that just gets ignored year after year after year. And boy, it's uh, uh, you kind of have to despair about the unwillingness to learn anything new about that aspect of the economy. But that seems to be uh, pretty strong and uh, with no end in sight. Yeah, I'm looking at now the uh, McGraw-Hill Florida economics textbook and their little bit on about the Fed. It's all about how, like, oh, well, the Fed's role in the economy is to uh, is, is to protect consumers and to uh, uh, make sure the economy is going strong or has, is maintaining a strong economy and preventing against manipulation of the currency. And so golly gosh darn, that sounds like the greatest thing ever. But again, that there is such an institutional bent within it. And so again, if, if the takeaway is, oh, well, it's important for the Fed to do these sort of things. And oh, well, you know, look how, you know, you know uh, acting as if these, you know, the Fed is, is a, a effective, you know, it, it's, it's, they're, they're, they're the ones in charge of regulating banks to make sure bad actors, you know, don't, you know, steal your money and things like that. That's obviously, you know, this is going to lead to, <laughs> lead to students getting a completely wrong idea on the relationship that we have these, with these institutions. If you are a, you know, DC skeptic, small government conservative. Um, and yet again, these are the only options that are out there. Yeah, and this is no minor issue. This is at the very center of uh, both the national and global economy. So if you think this doesn't have the power to make you poor, 
uh, then you are very, very wrong. But we'll, uh, we, of course, cover this topic in detail in other episodes. So, though, why don't we move on to your first topic uh, here? Well, so when I look at a textbook, the first thing I go to is always their story of the Great Depression. I, I feel that in many ways, and part of this might be my own experience as you know a millennial that didn't have interest in economics until uh, the Great Recession, and it seemed like everyone, you know, it, it seemed like kind of everyone's ideology had you immediately retreated to depictions of the Great Depression and its response. So you had, you know. Amity Schley's The Forgotten Man was sort of the go-to for like Tea Party Republicans. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm betting, I wasn't around the office back then, but I'm betting that copies of Murray Rothbard's Great Depression were flying off the shelves in the Mises bookstore. I know I got my first copy um, in, in the same way. Um, you had Krugman, you know, selling the return of depression economics and that sort of stuff too. So kind of everyone within a crisis, they retreat back to their understanding of what went on during the Great Depression and the response to it. Either FDR is the greatest thing in the world and he did what was necessary or, you know, the, the, it, it made things longer. Um, and in particular, I think it's always interesting the way that Herbert Hoover is portrayed in this story. Now, again, I'm going to shamelessly piggyback off of the work of Bob Murphy and Tom Woods um, in on this issue, both of which you know were, were very um, formative for me uh, back in the day. But in reading through, I mean, you know, it, it, it wanted to make my, my head pop with the way that Herbert Hoover in particular is depicted. Um, so this, this is the, the TCI History Alive Pursuing American Ideals, Florida High School History textbook. I just wanna read this one little paragraph. Um, Hoover's conservative response to hard times. President Herbert Hoover believed strongly in self-reliance, rugged individualism, and hard work, reflecting these conservative principles in his own life. Orphaned at age nine, Hoover became a millionaire and a respected public official through his own talent and determination. Hoover was not oblivious to people suffering, but like most conservatives, he did not believe that the federal government should provide aid to the needy. He worried that federal relief would undermine self-reliance and encourage people to become dependent on government handouts. Instead, he supported mutual self-help through voluntary giving. Uh, and it's just like, no, Herbert Hoover massively expanded government spending. He, 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 he put pressure on you know, the, the rugged individuals put extreme pressure on, on American corporations um, to, to avoid layoffs and wage declines. He, at that time, was the most expansionary use, the most interventionist president in economic matters. And FDR's entire campaign was run on this, you know, this, this, this wacko Herbert Hoover is spending too much. He's being fiscally irresponsible. I'm going to come in and, and I'm going to restore our, our respect for the free enterprise. And of course, completely went out the window, you know, all lies, you know, and, and the rest leads to tragedy. But again, you know, these are just blatantly incorrect, you know, distortions of the record of these two men, I didn't, and go, going ahead again, like they explicitly say that like Roosevelt's entire election in 1932 was because of his calls for a new deal, which is good, not right. And so these are objectively lies, historically incorrect points that are gonna baked in to a textbook. Um, and and you know, if, if, you, if this is the way that you view the Great Depression, 
If you think, oh, well, it was caused because of the, the, the laissez-faire commitment to free principles of Herbert Hoover, and it was saved because of FDR, then how else are you going to navigate the future from a political perspective than thinking that, golly gosh darn, you need massive government redistribution and, and a, 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 you know, government jobs and an ever-growing regulatory state in order to, 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 to fix things because to do otherwise is a naive commitment to these arcane um, you know, conservative principles that allow people to suffer. I think it just, it, 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 this is the stuff that conservatives should be up in arms about. But again, it, it gets completely, completely ignored um, because the fo- they, they can kind of only get outraged at one thing at a time when it comes to these school issues. Yeah, we ran just an article last week, I think, commemorating the 90th anniversary of FDR taking uh, the U.S. off the gold standard and uh, basically threatening, with just an executive order, threatening to imprison and fine people who didn't give up their gold. Uh, so that was that. Uh, There's a huge, massive violation of basic human rights uh, and just a government theft. But that was a new turn, as that article noted, because it was uh, it was from the time. It was written, I believe, in the late 30s. Um, and it was looking at how that represented actually a real big turn for FDR, that it wasn't really until later in 1933 that it became clear that FDR had gone over to all of these newfangled ways of thinking about centrally planning the economy and and uh, manipulating the money supply, driving up prices, which was a big purpose of taking the U.S. off the, the gold standard. They wanted to actually drive prices up, which they thought would improve the economy. And uh, that was a uh, an innovation in uh, the administration because, as you say, yep, he had run on... The old, well, the Democratic Party up until that time still had a significant laissez-faire wing in it, as had been the dominant wing up until the 1890s. But it was still there a little bit into the 1932 campaign. And, yep, that's what he ran on. He did not run on the New Deal because, as, as often is noted when talking about Hoover, Hoover was this engineer, and he felt that you could... Uh, plan society like you could a well-oiled machine. So he absolutely believed that from Washington with a bunch of smart people, you could plan the economy. And so, yeah, that whole narrative is just completely reversed. But I think that's the key to understanding it, though, is this fake dichotomy they make between Hoover and FDR, that Hoover was the free market guy and FDR came in and reversed it when the reality was is that uh, the, the laissez-faire people offered, because they were so out of power, they really offered no real uh, alternative to it. And that with the central bank having been invented in 1913, they were already so far down the road of all that sort of economic manipulation and everything that there was no real laissez-faire option anyway available. But you're right. And just as George W. Bush invoked the whole, well, I had to uh, basically destroy capitalism to save it argument in in his own uh, period, it's, it's absolutely absurd that he could claim uh, that that was like a good thing that the voters would want to hear. Uh, really quite amazing. And 
So uh, that's, uh, there's no winning on that argument either until conservatives start, I think, to really push back on the New Deal narrative. But to do that would require an actual understanding of what led up to it and what the causes were, and most people just really aren't interested in that. And, and not, not, to, not to belabor this point too much, but I, I think a few years ago, was, I, was, I was reading the Machiavellians by, by Burnham, and it kind of, kind of starts out um, you know, just, just reading the, the 1932 platform of the Democrat Party. And there's kind of like five main points. I'm just going to read it because it's not that long. Uh, but, but, you know, but FDR is running on a platform uh, for, one, an immediate and drastic reduction of government expenditures by abolishing useless commissions and offices, consolidating departments and bureaus, and eliminating extravagance uh, to accomplish a savings rate of not less than 25%, to maintenance of the, uh, of the national credit by a federal budget annually balanced on the basis of accurate executive uh, estimates within, three, a sound currency to be preserved at all hazards, um, it, and they condemn, four, the open and covert resistance of administrative officials to every effort made by congressional committees to control the extravagant ex expenditures of the government, and five, the extravagance of the farm board, its disastrous action which made the government a speculator in farm products. And again, it's, you know, it, it's, it, it, this goes to the entire point about Burnham's book and, and you know, the, the, you know uh, the manipulation of politics, but like, again, hey, I, I, I'll vote for that candidate. That, that candidate sounds pretty good in my, my book, and then, then you get FDR. All right, well, on to the next topic here, topic three for uh, today's episode on historical myths. And this one is going to be on the U.S. Constitution. This is usually the one where I perhaps get the most pushback, but this really sets the stage for the real heart of the issue is that, is it good to centralize political power in a national government and how necessary was it in the 1780s. And I do think we are making some headway here, uh, especially among younger people, uh, because they they teach so little about really the Constitution one way or the other that I don't think people have been propagandized uh, today if they're under age 30 to the extent that people in, say, the 60 to 70-year-old age range have been fully propagandized. Uh, about the glories of the U.S. Constitution. So I think we're, we're picking them off by showing uh, uh, that there are some serious problems there. And I think this is where you have to really ground yourself in terms of, yes, bigger, uh, more powerful government is bad, even when guys in powdered wigs do it. And now there's been this strain of thinking for a long time. Charles Beard, who was a great scholar from about 100 years ago, uh, had pointed out, and I don't think he was fully correct, I think he maybe uh, went a little bit too far, but Charles Beard pointing out how the people who were behind the new national constitution uh, were pushing it in many ways to simply enrich their own social and political class, and that there weren't all these noble reasons behind it. But here's what the real story of the U.S. Constitution is. It's that uh, the, the end of the war came, uh, all of these former colonies had become independent republics in their own right. There were 12 of them, and then you add Vermont a little bit later, and they were fully functioning republics. They had independent judiciary. They had elected legislatures. They had uh, elected governors. Most of them, in fact, they were far more 
um, responsive to the people because they had more frequent elections. The people who ran the states, of course, uh, they had to live near and and uh, at in places where they could be easily accessed by the general public. And many of them had their own bills of rights. And of course, they had their own militias as well to keep the peace. Uh, and they also functioned in a national unit as well uh, under the, the Constitution of 1776, which people now call the Articles of Confederation to distinguish it from the later Constitution, but it was just simply America's first Constitution, which took power in 1776. And the main complaint was that it was too hard to raise taxes. That was the real problem that guys like Madison and Washington had. Uh, they imagined themselves uh, with the ability to have more power, to raise more taxes, to have a more invigorated federal government. Hamilton especially really wanted that. Um, and so they came back and started devising a conspiracy, essentially. There's no way, other way to really describe it. They started conspiring uh, about ways that they could push through a new constitution. And it's, it's no surprise then that, that when they finally did manage to whip up enough power to get that into place, they made it all a secret. And so that was all to, to be kept out of the public eyes so the public wouldn't even know what they were doing. They lucked out because then they had some civil unrest that occurred, and that was Shays' Rebellion. And this, however, was put down by the Massachusetts uh, militia. There was no requirement. They didn't need any of the federal troops uh, or people from other states. They didn't need to, to somehow put together a national army to put that down. It was handled, handled by the state of Massachusetts, the Republic of Massachusetts, which, by the way, has the oldest functioning Republican constitution in the world today, the state of Massachusetts. And they, uh, they handled it. it was, the problem was over. Uh, but they managed to, just as they do now with uh, Islamists or you know, 100 years ago, it was anarchists and uh, whatever your latest uh, boogeyman is, at the time it was these Shays Rebellion types. Your state might have these sorts of people too who want to engage in licentiousness. That was always their, uh, their word that they were using. So they managed to push through uh, this this new constitution, after their secret proceedings, uh, passed by only the wealthiest members of society for the most part. And what, what was the result? The result was massive amounts of new taxation power, a much larger military. Uh, the, the original founders even opposed the idea of a Bill of Rights. They thought it was, quote, unnecessary because nobody would ever read into the constitution what wasn't explicitly written there. Uh, so there's no need for a Bill of Rights. They managed to push that through, but it was still woefully incomplete, as we see today. And we also found out you could just ignore parts of it, just like they ignore the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, just like they ignore, for the most part, the Second Amendment. And so immediately after that, then, you move on to the Judicial Act, the Judiciary Act of 1789, creating this massive federal uh, system of judges and courts. And then the number of federal crimes just started to mount from there. This didn't create a more peaceful United States. It didn't create a more secure United States. It created a much more heavily taxed United States. It created a much more powerful federal government. And yet it is like gospel among alleged small government conservatives that the U.S. Constitution in 1789 was the most important thing, the most necessary thing, something that secured our liberties. Liberties, liberties were already secured 
before then. The only threat to liberty that they could come up with was small bands of farmers in pockets of places like in Massachusetts, where, again, state officials were able to put it down in almost no time at all. So where was the case for it? It was really just about raising taxes, and it was about creating a, a massive new military power and structure, which then led, of course, to annexing huge parts of land uh, west of the, the Mississippi, going to the ocean, which Jefferson all thought should be independent republics in their own right. And that never happened. Why? Because this new federal government was massively powerful and basically could tell the states what to do at that point. And you know what the, the funniest part is, is that by 1865, about 80 years later, the U.S. was already a blood-soaked failed state. This, this new constitution was so unworkable that the United States descended into a bloody civil war where the only solution then, as the North saw it, was to burn down half the country, occupy them militarily for another nine years, another 11 years, and, and then claim that the constitution had worked fine. And so that's the real story of the Constitution. It was there to massively raise taxes, and then it failed 80 years later, uh, resulting in a huge civil war and a failed state. Uh, so I fail to see why, why people are still singing its praises, uh, but that's, that just seems to be conservative gospel now. But if you are arguing about uh, the wonders of that Constitution, what you are arguing for is higher taxes. You're arguing for a more powerful government. You're arguing for a federal judicial system that trumps local rights and local autonomy. And there's no other way of really explaining it because all the states already had bills of rights. They already had all those institutions that we associate with free government. So uh, that's, a, that's a historical narrative that conservatives should really stop pushing now. They should really be looking more at decentralization. They should be look at, looking at scaling back federal powers and uh, really just rewriting the whole thing to be a whole lot more like the first constitution, which is what the revolutionaries actually thought they were fighting for. Well, that's it, Ryan. You have convinced me. I'm going <laughs> to try to get Patrick Newman's cronyism, liberty versus power in early America, put into the Florida textbook. <laughs> <laughs> approval process, because that is exactly the sort of narrative that, uh, that our, our students need, need to have about the, the, the true battles going on of the early days. Well, why don't you uh, tell us what the final section here is today? What's this last myth we uh, should be abandoning? Well, so after I flip through to the Great Depression section, the next one I always go to is the Progressive Era, and in particular, I find the word the, the name Upton Sinclair, and see how he is presented within the story. And of course, Upton Sinclair is one of those individuals who essentially has the role of a secular saint of American history. After all, here he was this, I mean, he's the perfect archetype, right? He's a reporter, right? Who just is looking out for the little guy. And he goes and he inspects these meat packing plants and he sees all these horrible things. And thank goodness for his reporting because of that, you know, the, the, the brave, noble Teddy Roosevelt comes out and pushes through regulation and it saves us from all this rancid meat and, and human body parts and, and rat droppings that were in our Polish sausages, right? Um, and of course, you know, completely left out in this entire equation, right, is that many of the claims is that Upton Sinclair was not some sort of 
independent reporter, right? He was a socialist activist. He, he was explicitly trying to make a broader point for greater nationalization of, of American industry. He goes on and, and runs for, for governor of California, promoting you know, the, the most you know, radical political platform. Um, even FDR said, man, this guy's going a little bit too far. Um, but of course, this is the, the entire way though that the progressive era in general is portrayed um, in these, these history books. Um, and again, so now I'm, now I'm quoting from uh, uh, one, one other uh, textbook out there, uh, FTE. Um, you know, but progressives were, were so outraged at the injustices of industrial society um, you know, that, that they made their own individual efforts at social reform, which sounds so nice. And so, you know, it, and so again, this entire narrative is, oh, well, you know, that you just have these, these plucky group of writers and activists who, who are just protecting normal people from the brutal nature of the industrial revolution and the nature here. And, and of course, what, what all of this is, is just a smokescreen, a facade for government regulations that always benefited large established powers at the expense of other of, of, of smaller firms it, it allowed for the creation um, my, my wife and I a few months ago were watching um, a pretty well done series of the, the food that made America and uh, one of the big wigs within this uh, Heinz ketchup um, and ketchup was very important at the time because it kind of helped help uh, mask some of the, the funkiness he got with pre-refrigeration era, era era meat. Um, but basically, Heinz Ketchup was, was upset about competitors, uh, you know, kind of honing in as for his territory. So he was a big advocate for the, the Clean Food Act and, and the Roosevelt era policies because that helped protect his industry and, and his dominant position within the marketplace there. And of course, this is the way that all of these, you know, the, these, these errors and reforms. And, and again, you know, I'm not saying that every single, you know, that, that, that the textbook has to, to simply have, give only the sort of, of Rothbardian view of history. And it is worth noting that there's a great chapter on the meatpacking myth on Mary Roth, Rothbard's progressive era um, book, which you can get a 20% discount on Mary Rothbard's progressive era at, using the promo code ROTHPOD at the Mises bookstore, R-O-T-H-P-O-D. Um, but but within that, that collection is a lot of great, um, a great chapter in particular on Upton Sinclair and the meatpacking regulations, but just the broader narrative though of what this progressive era really was, the massive change it had in terms of the massive growth of the state. And so again, if, if you are a conservative and, and your concern is about the textbook, the way that they tell the progressive era story is as important as the way they tell the Great Depression era story because they immediately have baked into it heroes social justice reformers and villains, business leaders, right? And so that dynamic, again, it's, it's, it is so, it's so accepted that, that you know, even, you know, even conservatives that are, have their antennas up for, uh, the, you know, we, we don't want this stuff in our, in our math textbooks because you know, there, there's certain values being put in there. They're, they're completely blind to, to this narrative. And again, when you have that narrative baked in there, the progressive era, good versus evil, nothing short of it, don't be surprised when you have a generation as left-wing as what we have right now. Yeah, I think a lot of the time the problem with these textbooks is the tone in terms of they present this narrative and anybody can see 
that this was the problem and that you needed some great president to fix the problem, usually is how a lot of these narratives works. And what everyone, the point everyone needs to get to when reading any sort of historical text is uh, to ask themselves a very important question. And I learned this question when I think I was like a sophomore in college. I, in fact, I was on this issue of the, um, the Articles of Confederation. I was writing something about, you know, the founding fathers or whatever. It was an American politics class. And I said something about how, well, the, the, the Articles of Confederation wasn't working, so they had to go do this new thing. And I remember the teacher, who was this far-left teacher, uh, but I still still like her, still admire her, because she kind of taught me how to be skeptical of the state in general. She was the sort of leftist a Rothbardian can like. And I, the paper came back, and she had written in the margin, according to whom, the, when I, right next to the phrase of, well, the old Constitution wasn't working. So that was the key question, right? Oh, well, then we need a new Constitution. According to whom? And so often, right, the, well, there were all these horrible health problems in the food production. Okay, according to whom? And that, uh, that then gets you on the road to maybe finding out the more crucial information, which is beyond just, oh, well, somebody told me there was this bad thing and that the government could solve the problem. Because as soon as you start going with that, I mean, it's just, uh, and, and as much as some conservatives like to think that they're against government solving problems, obviously not, because we could, we could list all day things involving the FBI, the CIA, the federal government, the Pentagon, where clearly uh, conservatives agree that the federal government will solve problems. So let's just move beyond that idea right now. Um, and so, yeah, we, we just need to bring a, a different way that we read these historical texts, and it goes just so much deeper than just some race theories that are current, currently popular. There's, uh, there's a whole lot more to it, and I, and I think your point is, is well taken, right? If you're just ignoring all this other stuff, you're really dropping the ball, and, you're, okay, you're going to win one tiny little battle there, but then you're just going to lose the war big time, so... Uh, I think that's one reason why we'll return then in the future to this topic of these historical myths. Um, and so we hope you can join us on uh, those future episodes, but we'll come back to something uh, probably more newsy next week. And so thank you for joining us on uh, Radio Rothbard, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>